This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media businesses matters to people who love media. I'm Alex Sintner. And I'm Amanda Lotz. And we're back! What is this, Alex? It's- this is what happens when we end up in quarantine and we decide, hey, let's take a look back at 2019. So Media Business Matters went on hiatus because I moved across the world and that had its own special challenges. And then there were the time zones and it all just seemed too difficult until all time stopped and it just seemed like a good time to check in and and maybe we could see what had happened in the news of media in the last year. And here we are. Yes, we're very excited to be back for this special look back. But we want to first acknowledge that The world that we're in now is different from the world we left you in a year ago. And because of all the shutdowns and everything else related to COVID-19. So for this conversation, we acknowledge that COVID-19 has thrown everything into disarray. In many ways, what we're doing is a look back at 2019 and sort of what was the state of the media industries before the virus. And and to some degree, you know, we can't guess whether this is three months, six months, nine months, help us, not 12. So we're not looking forward because we've never done that. But we're just taking stock of where media industries were before this all happened. Absolutely. And we also don't know what the world we're going to come back to is. I mean, movie theaters are shut down, performance spaces are shut down, movies are going to VOD, television and film production is shut down, but we just don't know what it means. So here we are, a year after our last episode and three months after the launch of Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus. So what's been going on in that world? Well, I think... What we've seen in the last three months in many ways isn't surprising. There, there was an audience ready for Disney+, Plus, and we've seen that in the high subscriber numbers even before there was a, a self-isolation potential boom. Um, and, you know, Apple certainly got its share of attention and then, you know, sort of disappeared in a way that's not surprising, given that it was never going to be a, a service that had a whole ton of content it really isn't in the same game. And I think at this point, both you know, three months removed from launch as well as in this situation of, of the virus, I think we're, we're starting to see what, what I've argued for a while now, which is that these businesses are actually quite different. And the streaming wars frame, which has really dominated the U.S. discussion of this, is a little bit off the mark. Because what you have is different companies that aren't actually competing directly with each other. Uh, The short version of this, not all video is competing. Actually, different companies that are running different races. And because they're running different races and they have different goals, we actually can have multiple winners. Apple can actually be thoroughly succeeding at what the aims that that company had for its video play are at the same time as Disney and Netflix and, and frankly, many of the others. And so I think one of the first things that we have to do is step back and really understand what the business behind these different services actually is and and what the goals are before we, we try to imagine how they are, quote unquote, competing. I agree with that completely, uh, especially given that Disney has Disney Plus has a specific audience they're going after. It happens to be a massive audience and an audience that led to what would be considered a very successful short-term launch. Apple is built for those 
Apple users, and I'm not even sure you can really say too much about their subscriber numbers, given that they were giving it away for free with iPhones and other purchases. Right. I think in in some ways I'd measure the... I'm looking at the kind of the cultural impact of Apple Plus. Like, its programs don't actually seem to be the center of conversation, and it, it doesn't seem to be playing at all an outsized role in the the viewing economy, um, which, again, it doesn't mean it's failing. It's not at all surprising. It was doing a very different thing. And meanwhile, Disney had The Mandalorian, massive hit right off the bat. In their pipeline, they have Marvel and other shows from very prominent properties of theirs, as well as just that wealth of family content. And they're going to target that audience that's different from what some others are targeting. The things to be watching with Disney uh, have to do with the international rollout, which had really just started. Um, it, it launched early in Australia and New Zealand, but had just come into Europe in, in recent months. Um, a lot of that, the big subscriber number that we saw in the news of, of, of 50 million, uh, I think 8 million of that was from India. The question, I think one of the things to watch, and it's, it's kind of obscured, I think, in the U.S. context, is how Disney rolls out internationally, and then how it continues to adapt internationally. I've been watching, and they've been doing a lot of hiring in terms of people with job titles like vice president of this international or that, but it's not clear what the strategy is going to be in terms of programming. It seems, you know, pre-COVID and the budgets and businesses the way they were, uh, it didn't seem like... Disney had plans to be doing production around the world in the way that Netflix has. Um, but part of being a multinational s in 2020 is not just pumping out content from the U.S., but is in developing content within markets as well. I think you're getting at something that is going to be the key to Netflix's future, and we can bring that in here. I mean, Netflix over the past year has only been expanding their international programming. Why, yes, they have. And I've actually been studying that. (laughs) And I can tell you, we've been working on trying to put together a database of um, the original productions. Um, And, you know, all of this is made so much more challenging because Netflix releases, you know, very limited information. And in their own marketing, they tend to conflate things that are acquisitions and say that they are Netflix originals. And anyway... So it, I can pull those apart pretty easily when they're U.S. productions, but it's a little harder when they're uh, set in South Korea. Um, but uh, the research team that I'm involved with here has been working on that, and you know, one of the preliminary things that we've seen is that actually since they started doing original series production, and I'm just talking scripted series here, and so this isn't films, this isn't kids. Or reality. Or reality. There's actually not much reality, but there there's a lot of documentary. of the originals are produced outside the U.S. And I haven't quite figured out what to do with that, right? So in some ways, that was a lot higher than I expected. So more than half of Netflix original series are produced outside the U.S. And so that, that, that's interesting, but outside the U.S. Is a, is a really big place. And so for the most part, that, that really doesn't mean more than a handful of, of series in any particular country. Um, but I think we're just at the start uh, of, of understanding the role of multinational production for these multinational SVODs. And, and there's a lot of ways in which 
the the core business is is a bit different than the kinds of multinationalism that we've seen with television before. And and I think that will tell us a lot. But but I think to go back to your point, Alex, you're you're exactly right. And Netflix is really setting itself up to service the multinational audience in a way that's different from what Disney Plus is aiming at. And all of these ventures are, are really so new and, and decently unprecedented that it, that we can opine all we want, but to some degree, we, we just need to sit back and see how this plays out because what these companies are doing is unprecedented enough uh, that, that we're just, we, we can't be certain. Right, especially in the TV space. I mean, in movies, you've started to see a lot of movie companies starting to tailor, especially to the Chinese market. But you, you're not necessarily used to seeing TV shows, you know, that are internationally released targeting, um, pointing to specific markets in their production process or where they film or who they cast in order to, in order to help gain credence with that audience. Right, and we just haven't had distribution structures that enabled the level of cross-national trade that we're seeing right now. Um, and, and certainly, you know, there have been perceptions and, uh, about different audiences. Certainly one of the dominant ones has been that the, the U.S. audiences won't watch anything that's not produced in the U.S. And sort of once that becomes an industry lore, very few are willing to challenge that. And I think one of the things that, you know, Netflix's experimentation, I don't think this was deliberate. I think that just the chance of it, you know, that they were doing these things that were different from conventional Hollywood strategy is that they, they learned that, you know, what were, what were believed as Hollywood truths, uh, weren't actually the case and that there were audiences. It may not be a mass audience. It may not be an audience that would have been large enough to support an advertiser funded cable channel, but there were audiences that were interested in seeing things other than American content and that were willing to pay for it. And that the particular business model that Netflix has in terms of not being tied to gathering the most viewers and trying to sell them to advertisers, uh, that actually their particular business model and their the way that they are able to deliver content on demand so that they can be lots of things to lots of people at the same time, that, that those characteristics actually suited them for a very different programming strategy than suits channels that are ad-funded and delivering a linear schedule. Absolutely. Now let's talk Hulu, the newly minted Disney asset. Yes. Alex, tell me about Hulu, because I think an important thing to acknowledge is that that is a U.S.-only product. And so again, when we're talking streaming wars, Hulu is is in the marketplace in the U.S., but nowhere else. So it, there's maybe there's just this many different streaming wars, but Hulu's not out there with Apple and Disney and Netflix in terms of availability in the world market. That's true, but they're still pretty prominent here in the U.S. And, and they recently just gained access to FX and their wealth of content, including getting new shows produced for them by John Landgraf, including shows originally targeted for FX like Mrs. America and Devs. In addition to the shows targeted um, for FX that are now airing exclusively on Hulu, they also have access to current airing shows on the day after they air. 
which was different than the pri- any prior deal before that. I was really interested to see when they announced that the FX content would be going to Hulu. And if, if we think back to, I guess maybe it would have been the last time we talked back when we knew there was a Disney service coming, but it wasn't clear what would be on it. Would there be one? Would there be two? How was that going to work? I think that was the first suggestion about, uh, well, Hulu's going to be a more adult space in comparison with Disney, uh, which, you know, early on they had said that it was going to be all sort of family-friendly content. And I'm not sure that we can say that that actually is the case now that it's come to market. What you see here, I think, from a business perspective is, is Disney actually um, balancing its risk in some ways. So it was an incredible risk for Disney to take back all the licensing that it had with other entities such as Netflix on the Marvel films and on the you know, Disney family things, the kind of things that are on Disney Plus now, because that meant all of that revenue that they were getting from licensing went away. So what they're able to do by keeping this other content on Hulu is they're, they're able to earn money from it in the U.S. on Hulu, but that's content that they're selling to other providers around the world, and they're still getting licensing money from. For example, here in Australia, I'm watching the FX shows on a service called Foxtel Now. Those sorts of deals that already existed are, are being kept in place and are helping Disney balance its risk of this period in which it doesn't have the kind of licensing that it did have from what we might think of as, you know, it's, it's marquee or it's most definitely Disney products. So I, I, I think that's how that strategy makes sense to me. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting to me that they, they, there's content that just doesn't have a home on Disney+. Plus. Although I would have originally thought The Simpsons wouldn't have had a home on Disney+, Plus either. Um, so it's interesting that that show has made a home. But something like the FX shows wouldn't make sense for that family audience. And it's kind of a part of what turned out to be a three-pronged strategy for Disney with all the family stuff going to Disney+, Plus, all the adult stuff going to Hulu, and, and trying to carve out that space for sports on ESPN Plus as well. Right. The sports part of the conversation has sort of fallen away. But in, in the sports conversation does tend to be pretty uh, U.S.-centric as well. I mean, I think that I was just listening to some conversation about you know, someone arguing that Disney Plus needed more ABC content. And, you know, just in, in the brief time I've been away, Alex, I've lost track of what ABC content even is. Um, <laughs> you know, is that driving Hulu um, or is it more uh, something that should be on Disney Plus? Well, you could probably make the argument that there's some ABC content that would belong on Disney+. Plus. Like, you could probably put the family sitcoms on there, but I couldn't imagine Grey's Anatomy, which is still airing miraculously 15 or 16 years later. Here, too. Um, like, I couldn't imagine that being at home on Disney+. Plus. So putting that on Hulu makes complete sense. And I mean, right now, all the ABC shows are showing up day, day after air on Hulu, usually rolling over for the complete season. And I'm not sure where the ABC shows stream after the fact. I don't think all of them are Hulu exclusive right now. But I could I could see the argument that the family sitcoms could go on Disney Plus, like the Goldbergs. It makes complete sense for that thing to be on Disney Plus. Yeah, that is a good point. And I think again the the thinking probably has a lot to do with what what and how extensive the license the existing licensing is with other entities and and really what those deals look like i mean i think 
at the end of the day, we have to remember that all of these decisions are being made actually with you know spreadsheets that say, well, you know, our, our choice is this number for certain in terms of we have these buyers willing to pay this. Um, or uh, do we think that it is needed to add value and, and, and we're going to believe that it's going to bring in more subscribers? So I think it is really a, a, different, a difficult calculus for these companies. And one thing I do want to acknowledge with Hulu is they still have the day after air rights to shows from Fox and NBC. And I do wonder when that's going to go away. I mean, that's how they built their service was this day after air content. And that's how I started watching Hulu and then eventually subscribed to it. I do wonder when those non-Disney entities will stop working with Hulu. I think that's a good point. And and I also think the related question is how long can the broadcast networks actually afford to, to continue putting a lot of money into scripted programming? And you know, is there a point at which those entities become more based around water cooler, cheaper programming that people are just going to watch live um, and that they begin to seed really that market of expensive scripted programming to the variety of streaming services that are out there that for the most part are just a better experience for viewers. Um, and, and so I think in many ways the future of Hulu is is tied to the future of those broadcast channels and, and their strategies going forward. Let's now transition to talking about Peacock and HBO Max. Peacock has subtly entered the U.S. market for Comcast Xfinity subscribers. HBO Max is due to launch at some point in May, although some of these might be scrambled by the ongoing virus situation. Like, Peacock was supposed to launch around the Olympics. There are now no 2020 Olympics. Do they really change the market at all? Well, I think I think it makes it a, a lot more difficult to launch. The Olympics is is a wonderful way to build attention and and would have been a great platform for for um, Comcast, NBC. I'm not even sure who we're talking now uh, to use to get Peacock out there. But again, I think you know, coming back to this original, like which of these services are competing, how and why? I mean, Peacock is really doing a different thing in terms of its aim to be ad-supported. Um, both at this point, Peacock and HBO Max look like they are also aiming only at a U.S. market. Um, and so that's really significant in terms of, of the scale that they might need to attract. Um, Peacock is interesting because it's doing something that no one else is doing. And so, you know, I think there there tends to be more space for players that are doing different things um, than services that are kind of replicating what is already in the market, which is where I, I, I have some skepticism around uh, HBO Max. But then we also have to ask the question, is what Peacock is bringing to market something that people actually want? Uh, and I think that would be the case or uh, the launch of, of Quibi in, in the recent weeks is perhaps evidence in, in that regard. And, you know, certainly it, it's pretty early, but, you know, the, the consistent line on Quibi was, do people want to watch short form professional content and pay a monthly subscription? And, uh, well, we're, we're finding that out. Quibi is something that we almost didn't want to talk a lot about, but we kind of felt like we had to acknowledge. It is such an odd little entity. And again, there's no reason why it can't coexist in this ecosystem of 
you know, services that are doing different things. And so I think it's less a question. It's not, you know, no one's actually posing the question, is Disney Plus going to kill Quibi? No, we understand that those are <laughs> companies or those are services that are doing really different things. And so on, on some level, you have this competitive space of, you know, do you have a specific enough value proposition that is being unserved? Um, and then, you know, what is the competitive space around it? But I think we're kind of talking through a pretty interesting trend here with the older media companies that are launching streaming services, mostly focusing in the U.S., with the exception of Disney. I mean, we have Hulu focusing on the U.S., Peacock and HBO Max focusing on the U.S. And is this like a way of kind of trying to hold on to that older revenue from the international market while trying to see if they even can launch these streaming services in the U.S.? I, I think you're you're right on the money there, right? So you if you've got guaranteed revenue coming in, then that's that's really important in a time when you're launching something new. By the way, it's also really hard to launch a multinational streaming service, um, even if you are a, a company like this. So these are you know giant tankers that are you know trying to turn on a dime as much as that can be the case. So yes, I think the idea that the business is somewhat diversified and that they're treating the U.S. market one way, the rest of the world another, and that the U.S. then becomes a bit of a, a test market. Um, and if, if they're successful, then on the on down the road, maybe they would choose to forego that kind of licensing revenue and, and develop a multinational service. Um, and, you know, as to why Disney's going a different route, I, you know, I think that's the Disney of it all, right? Uh, Disney's a very different brand. They have different association around the world. They have very clear identity around their product. You know, people know what Disney movies are in a way that's very different than, you know, what's a Warner Brothers movie. Um, and so I think all of that plays to Disney's advantage. And, and Disney, as we are seeing in this, this difficult moment for that company, their their eggs are not all in the streaming service bucket. Uh, a lot of the streaming service was there to help the broader business, which was involves selling plush toys and getting people to go to amusement parks. Um, and and you know yes, there's Universal and 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 you know sort of the the other small parks, but comparatively, the theme parks are a really big part of Disney's core business. Yeah, and I also want to acknowledge that sports are a key cornerstone of Disney's business. I mean, ESPN is still one of the largest revenue drivers, and I mean, they have the small hand in the ESPN Plus basket. That seems to be a forward-looking strategy, but they don't seem to be pushing everything all the way there yet. Well, I think with sports, you have a somewhat different dynamic in that the real power lies with these sport leagues. And you sort of have the sport leagues watching out for their own uh, success in a different way than is the case in scripted programming. To this point, the sports leagues have needed the ESPNs of the world to to distribute their content. It isn't a requirement going forward. You know, these are all companies that could launch direct to customer services. They're not going to do that until it's clear that that is the way that they can make the most money, um, or that there is you know that they can balance their risk. I mean, right now, if you're a sports league and you do still have ESPN willing to pay large licenses, then you have ESPN really sitting on all that risk. Coming out of of this period of sports freeze, we really might be seeing um, some 
faster change than we would have otherwise. Um, and of course, all of these sports licenses are, you know, they're multi-year deals. I think there's a, a big NFL one coming up. Yes, the NFL renegotiation is in a year or two. I think we're already at the point where, given the loss of ESPN subscribers that has resulted from people cutting cable, and they might have been people who weren't watching ESPN before anyway, but they were people who had to pay for it because of the how just messed up way in which the uh, American cable system got built, that loss of revenue hits ESPN really hard and it will be difficult for them to continue to pay more for licenses because the new distribution technologies have given people, let's say, who didn't want ESPN a way to not have to pay for that service and still get the kind of content that they're interested in. Now, it's interesting to think about the fact that a Disney Plus subscription basically costs a home the same amount that that home pays every month in their cable bill for ESPN, whether they want it or not. Uh, and so, you know, sort of you, you really have the, the, the money that's on the table of, of, of cable bills moving around in different ways, and it probably will all still end up going to more or less the same companies, but in, in, in slightly different ways that really will be meaningful, especially in this, this the case of, of sports licenses. Now, there's one name that we haven't said yet in today's um, look at uh, the streaming services, and that's Amazon. I mean, they what have they been up to? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, Amazon is developing some programming uh, outside of the U.S. in terms of they're, they're delivering to audiences in many countries and doing multinational production. Their multinational production is much more targeted. It tends to be in the countries where Amazon is really actively pushing its retail. Uh, so it's not at all, um, it's not that Netflix is, is equally distributed, but Netflix is producing shows at this point in, in 27 different countries, whereas most of what Amazon is doing is in the UK and in India. To me, when I look at that, it's, it's very clear that video is a tool that Amazon has been using to advance its retail business, and it uses that tool in, in, in different markets. One thing that's been, that I've noticed sort of um, not a lot of conversation about, but um, is the way in which a sort of secondary Amazon video service has emerged, um, that it, it's not Prime Video, but it's uh, the ability for people to upload content that they own the content rights to and basically monetize. And so that isn't part of a Prime Video subscription, and but it's often priced fairly affordably. And so it's sort of this weird blend of a little bit more like YouTube or, you know, sort of something transactional. Um, so again, what Amazon is doing there business-wise is, is pretty different than what we see in terms of... Um, Disney or Netflix or the others, but but that that's a thing that's happening, and I think the if, if we're going to look at the the current situation, you know, the 
current crisis is certainly putting a lot of pressure on Amazon's retail business and in many ways may be very valuable for the retail business. And so I think the other question is then, um, when you are fully established as a retail business, how important is it to continue to have video to drive prime memberships? And then I think the other piece of it is that there's just been pretty steady turnover in terms of leadership at Amazon Studios. And, and, I, and you know, again, related to the very the somewhat different race that, that Amazon Video Prime Video is running, that a programming strategy and, and, and you know, sort of what they're actually trying to do there really hasn't gelled in the same way that it has for a lot of other services. And that's especially as you're on their film side. Um, they have hired Jennifer Salky, and she is now running things over at Amazon, but they've had a lot of turnover at their film studio. To me, I'd say that's definitely one of those watch these spaces as we come and we can segue here sort of to the the film side of, of the, the streaming wars conversation. In whatever new reality we, we have at the end of this, um, in which direct-to-home or day-and-date release may be regarded somewhat differently uh, than it was before the self-isolation period. And what is the role of of Amazon um, and some of the others in film distribution for companies and studios that haven't built the kind of uh, infrastructure that Disney um, and others have? Let's acknowledge why the day and date release might be seen differently. Um, And that's because movie studios have taken movies that were in theaters when they shut down for COVID-19 and they put them up on video on demand for usually around a $20 rental. And we had Trolls World Tour, which was originally targeted for theaters, go onto video on demand directly. But that's been more the edge case than the rule. We've seen a lot of movies be pushed as a result of COVID. What does it mean? We don't really know, but we want to acknowledge it. Right. I think any any sort of learning that comes out of these experiments, you know, it's such a very particular situation. But I mean, I think to the degree that it seemed as though the day and date release conversation was being held up by... um, you know, the sort of loggerheads of two parts of the film industry with different interests, you know, the, the retail or the exhibition, the exhibitors and the studios, um, you know, like in some ways this kind of pushed the conversation, right? And so the studios might have wanted to be doing some of this experimentation, but they really couldn't because they couldn't risk alienating and and angering the exhibitors and and to an extent that could lead them to not exhibit other films. And if we want to call it that, an opportunity of this time is for the studios to get some intelligence on how will people react. Um, And and you're right, these aren't the major films um, that probably would have lit up the the um, box office, those are being pushed. But, you know, within any studio slate, there's a, a range of titles. And, and at this point, they are smaller films, but they are also, perha- I mean, we won't know this, I haven't seen any of the data on it, but it, it would be interesting to know, you know, whether what were perceived as smaller films, um, you know, are finding an audience at home, even if that's a more captive audience than would have normally been the case. 
So let's talk about The Irishman, which was Netflix's big Oscar season release that got released to a lot of fanfare, ended up coming up empty at the Academy Awards, but still, is there anything that hasn't really been said about that yet? Well, I think <laughs> it was funny. It sort of it felt like Groundhog Day, um, just the endless hand wringing about uh, uh, the Irishman and how many theaters it could be released in or can't be released in, and what it means and and all of that. The point is is somewhat similar to the one with just the streaming services generally, which is that films are different. Different kinds of films are different. We're at a point that. There's a certain kind of film that people want to go to the theater to see, and they continue to turn up and 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 do exactly that, right? And so, yes, uh, we don't see strong growth uh, in movie going, but it's been steady. It has not fallen off a cliff in the way that behaviors radically changed, let's say, in the music industry or have changed um, in in the newspaper industry, like like. People who have gone to films are continuing to go to films, and the studios are, are basically driving them there with a certain kind of big budget um, spectacle film, and, and that's fine. But there's a ton of other stories out there to be told that just aren't suited for the competitive dynamics of contemporary theater going. And, and I think... I, I don't understand the the, the persistent resistance um, to services that uh, that many people have illustrated that they really enjoy using to see those stories. Um, and, and maybe it is it comes back to um, the business model of it and that you know, I think the question of, of what kind of films can be affordable for these services and, and the way that they are funded. Um, but I, I really think that the, the streaming services are, have been an a incredible opportunity for the film industry, um, but it just sort of seems like the, the constant dialogue is, a, is about them as a threat. And that's probably because to, to like the establishment film industry, film industry and film criticism, that movie theater is a sacred space. It is where you go to see a movie. I, I still remember remember when Russ Collins was on the podcast a few years ago, he talked about how movie going was pretty, pretty steady. Like, he talked about how the audience had been consistent over the years when maybe the, the narrative was that it had been dropping. But you do see that trend of people going to see blockbusters, mid-level films getting cut out, and that independent movie block contingent still being there and still being strong. And driving big hits like the fantastic Best Picture winner last year, Parasite. Yeah, I, I had a, I had this a this my lay theory at one point was that uh, The Mandalorian was you know, sort of Disney's attempt to sort of see what would happen if they released something direct to consumer, right? Because they couldn't risk, you know, actually releasing a Star Wars film not in a theater and, and truly, you know, something of the scale of, of a, a main level Star Wars film, um, you know, they wouldn't want to not release that in, in the theater. But I, you know, I sort of wondered to what extent... There's too much revenue. Right. But I wondered to what extent... Um, a service like Disney was going to use Disney Plus as a way to 
you know, sort of circumvent, you know, like, well, we won't call it a film. <laughs> and so therefore the, uh, the, the theaters might not get angry. If, if, if we call it a mini series, um, you know, it's, it's not that we're going direct to consumer, but we'll see. Um, again, there, are you about to say it's a mini, it's not an eight hour movie. It's a mini series. I, I, I well, if that ever happens, uh, <laughs> then, then we'll know we've truly gone to the upside down. <laughs> um, but there's also a narrative here about Netflix kind of tolerating the theatrical more than that actually caring about it. And that's a point that you made to me while we were planning this episode. And I thought it was an interesting way of looking at how Netflix has handled movie theater releases. Well, I mean, to me, it's been it's been fascinating the degree to which you know the major theaters you know have not let them release, right? Um, and so, mm -hmm. it, in some ways, for those of us who know our, our film history, it's just sort of upside down and backwards, right? Um, that you know what was once the problem of not being able to um, of theaters not being able to get films, it's now film or theaters won't play films, um, as a competitive strategy. So, so no, I mean, like, I think there was a lot of speculation when Netflix actually purchased a theater, but you know, I, I, I fully appreciate Alex, the importance of film going, you know, sort of in, in, in to you. And I do acknowledge that it's, it, it is a sacred space to, to many, um, but periods of massive disruption do cause us to, you know, reevaluate things and, you know, to sort of recognize that things that we thought were natural and the only way things could be, um, aren't necessarily so. And so as long as something like the Academy is going to say that you are not a film unless you are shown in a theater, um, you know, as always, you know, we're going to try to find a way to work around the rules. It, 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 does that really make sense as the way to define what a film is? You know, I, I don't know. It, it, it made sense in 1950 and 1970, but I, I think that's been up for debate for some time now. I would say, yes, you should be released in a theater if you're a film. But for the question I would raise is for how long? You know, it, Netflix has gotten into fights with exhibitors because of that window. And could we see like exhibitors, major exhibitors eventually accept a shrinking of the window? I mean, our friends at the Michigan Theater praise Netflix in their emails for bringing films to theaters, and they're happy to show these movies. And from my understanding, they do, they do well enough that more Netflix movies come to the theater. Yeah, again, I think we've hit a point where defining movies as things that are shown in theaters is a pretty blunt categorization. Like even if, if within the category Netflix movies or Netflix films, there's a, there's a lot of variation, right? And, and it's interesting if we take a look at what are the films uh, most watched on Netflix. And, you know, it actually, from the 2019 list, uh, it was Murder Mystery and Six Underground that I think were near the top of that list in the U.S. as well as actually many other markets. Uh, the Irishman did make it on that list, um, but it, you know it doesn't make sense for Netflix to have the same strategy for all of its films, and it seems to understand that. And it, it you know it, it you know if it's going to put 
money into something as a prestige film and because it wants the kind of buzz and uh, cultural capital that comes with some uh, nominations, then, you know, that's part of their strategy. But like the notion that Netflix, all of Netflix films should come to, to theaters, uh, you know, that that's not, that's actually just not how the business works anymore. And, and to, to, to say that they're not films because they're not in theaters, just, well, agree to disagree perhaps on that one. So moving on then, uh, Alex, I know that theater has always been close to your heart, and this is certainly a tough time for that industry, but without dealing with, with that uh, disaster, what would you say about uh, the, the theatrical year of 2019? Going into 2019, I was very excited about the gross potential for Frozen and Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, two major brands coming to the New York space. And I want to acknowledge that both shows have done pretty well, but they haven't blown the doors off of Broadway like some shows like Hamilton or The Lion King or Wicked. And they've kind of... Harry Potter has gotten to a point where I would consider it to be struggling. They, they're, they're doing something pretty interesting, though, where they constantly fill 100% of their seats, but they fluctuate the price based on demand to make sure that they get 100% of their seats filled. That's interesting. Dynamic pricing in theater. Yeah. Um, Moulin Rouge has been the hot hit of the 2019 to 2020 season, but that's a season whose story remains not completely told because COVID-19 has shut down the space. Usually my barometer for theater, the theater season ends with the Tony Awards but those have been postponed. Many of the shows that were targeting this year's Tony Awards have not had the chance to open, with a couple of them actually prematurely closing once Broadway shut down. Hmm. So the story of the 2019 to 2020 season really won't be told until after we figure, after the theater space figures out what is going to happen with that, those shows. Yeah. While also acknowledging that the 2019 Tony Award winner was Hades Town, and that it, that was excellent. All right. Yeah, I think we have probably some of the biggest question marks. I, I don't know. Maybe not. I, on one hand, my my brain wants to say that media sort of set in these live places is the question of the concert industry, the question of the theater industry, you know, that those are, are huge question marks. But on the other hand, you know, like, yes, we may watch television in our homes, but in order for there to be any new television, people are going to have to be able to go to workplaces where they touch each other and talk to each other and interact closely. So maybe, maybe everybody is still actually pretty much in the same boat where it's just very difficult to to create new content in these industries and it's been fascinating to sort of see the array of creativity and um, you know ingenuity and hey maybe we can actually get by without a lot of technical know-how right as uh, you know, shows like Samantha Bees you know produces from her yard and uh, <laughs> you know, the the good news show is produced out of you know, somebody's living room, you know, all of these things are possible. Um, how long we will, maybe it'll just become the new normal and when we'll forget that uh, we used to see these shows set in studios. Amanda, will we be the people going like, back in my day, we went to go see the late night shows <laughs> in a studio audience? Well, perhaps, perhaps. 
All right, another thing to revisit. And I will say, in, in case there are any long-term listeners out there, this is a story that Alex wanted to talk about so many times um, throughout 2018. And I kept saying, no, we don't know how it matters yet. Um, but you know, roughly 15, 18 months later, we actually have some resolution. And that is the Harvey Weinstein story. And so we have Harvey in jail. And Alex, I want you to hear your thoughts on whether things have changed and whether the the guilty verdict actually is something that has the kind of implications for the media industries that you thought that they were ha- that it would have back in 2018. I almost want to say that that story won't be completely told until we stop hearing stories of bad behavior. We have a guilty verdict. We have people like Les Moonves being pushed out of a job. No, I, I think that that hesitation is exactly what had been driving why I didn't want to talk about it, which you know, to some degree, I think quite a few people, guilty verdict or not, sort of had come to our own conclusions, right? Um, but we didn't know what the implications would be. And I think that's where we are still in 2020 is not really knowing how that changes the world of of women in Hollywood and whether there is now enough of a sense of acceptable behavior. Um, and, and I think you, you know some good things. It's not only that, that Les Moonves was pushed out, it, he, he also didn't get hired anywhere else six months later, right? And so those are, are indications. I, I have to say, I continue to be pretty disheartened in terms of the leadership of a lot of these companies. And, you know, you, you, you see Moonves get pushed out. And then I think like the, uh, like the Hollywood reporters, you know, profile of who are the leading candidates the next day is like three more dudes, right? There, there's due to be a changing of the guard um, in, in a pretty substantial way, I think somewhat generationally um, in these industries. And, and it doesn't seem like that has happened yet. And so I think uh, maybe cautiously optimistic would be where, where I'd come down on this. Um, you know, it, it, what we've seen in the last year um, ha- has been heartening, but in, in my book, it, it's still just not enough to really know that thing that that we're 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 in a new we're definitely not in a new place. Um, I think there's some evidence we're heading to that new place, and massive change is really difficult because it doesn't happen typically on you know with a turn of a uh, the flip of a light switch, right? It it, it takes time and, and often you And these are you you refer to these industries as tankers. <laughs> tankers are not easily steered. Well, they they're not turned, right? Like and you can turn them and you can, you know, turn them all the way, but then it takes, yeah, eons for them to actually, you know, be moving in that other direction. And so maybe maybe we've started to change direction. Um, and it, it is. It, it's just, it's sad and frustrating that the process of change has to be so slow. Um, but it, it is, it was a notable outcome. Um, and I guess <laughs> a year from now, uh, maybe we'll check back in and see what new evidence we have since this is the kind of uh, 
story where you know it, the the unit of time that has to expand uh, expend itself is is a year rather than a week or a month. Alex, from from my point down under, I'm uh, far more familiar with what's happening in the regulatory scene in Australia than I am in the U.S. And, uh, you know, I am following headlines, but I honestly haven't seen many from the U.S. media about things that the FCC has done this year. Has is Where are our stories? What's going on? Well, that's because there hasn't really been all that much to report, or at least not that much to report that our Media Business Matters listeners would care about. I mean, they're auctioning spectrums, and they're dealing with net neutrality, continuing to move through the courts, but we really don't have definitive headlines that are relevant to this media audience right now. Yeah, I mean, we were coming off some pretty big years in terms of um, mergers and acquisitions, um, and those being decided. Yeah, it... <laughs> Uh, it, 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 it will be interesting, you know, let's say if, if we had if there were a new administration who um, was was more involved. I think the issue certainly in the, the short term that has been significant is, you know, net neutrality related. But this this question of, of broadband access, especially in an environment where you have you know, most of America's children trying to learn at home. Um, I was I was really impressed actually with the the government the state government here. Um, you know their approach was that they are sending home laptops with SIM cards um, for all children that don't have either a computer at home or internet access. And you know that doesn't necessarily solve the problem in in a rural area, but you know, sort of just the the, the recognition that. Um, Internet access is something that uh, a class of us assumes is sort of to be part of everyday life as much as running water, but that that still isn't the case. And I, I know that that has been something that those are the few headlines that I have seen in the U.S., that it does sound like um, activists in the U.S. that have been trying to, to push for better mm-hmm. rollout of broadband access in those places that it hasn't been and for uh, folks who can't pay for it, um, that that continues to be a pretty big policy issue. And it's only been exacerbated by the recent crisis and has been pushed to the top of the headlines because of that. Absolutely. I guess the other story would have been, so the finally and at last, uh, the, the mobile merger um, went through. Mm-hmm. I, I will have to say, uh, part of living in Australia, pretty much everything is more expensive except for mobile phone service. And um, it, it really wasn't until getting out of the U.S. that I realized how bad the situation in the U.S. is because it is so controlled by now a duopoly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and, I, and I can only fear what happens now with uh, the merger in place. So, Yep. And we've, we spent a lot of time in our last roundup talking about AT&T and Time Warner. That has settled. And AT&T t- now owns Time Warner and all of its assets. And we haven't really seen too much about the amount of control that they put over the entity, but that's something that seems settled. Um, And so I think all along the suspicion was that the company would potentially use HBO Max as a tool to um, force subscription to AT&T's services. Um, And so I think, you know, that is something that, it's just, well, one, it's not clear 
how that will work and whether the HBO Max product is is something that um, actually they're able to use in that way. Um, and then I think the other thing I think we have to ask, you know, in two, in twenty twenty as opposed to to twenty eighteen is is really how much how many viewers will really care if AT&T holds HBO content effectively hostage right at this point is there just so much content out there and so many other services that you know that it, that if AT&T makes it so that you have to you know or you have to pay a whole lot or subscribe to AT&T in order to access those HBO shows does anybody even care anymore so i think that's a question out there too and a question that will be answered over the course of the next year. So that kind of concludes our 2019 wrap-up, but we always end our show by talking about some of the TV or movies or kind of anything that we've been consuming recently. So, Amanda, tell me about TV in Australia. Oh, it's been a... It's been an fascinating anthropological investigation because one part of leaving the U.S. for Australia is that uh, the electricity is entirely different, and so we had to sell all of our appliances and then buy new ones. Um, And so I've been living in this utterly changed environment where I have new TVs, I have an entirely new array of services, um, I, I have no established habits in terms of like the show I used to watch, although I didn't really watch anything much on on a schedule anymore in the U.S. anyhow. Um, So it's been an adventure, (laughs) Um, mostly good. Uh, I mean, just because of what I do for a living, I've been working really hard at trying to catch up with Australian television and just sort of know like the, the shows that I'm supposed to know or I would know had I been here longer. Um, and so, you know, I think the big changes, um, I have, as long as I can remember, uh, had cable service, um, and I don't have cable service here. Um, I still have, I haven't counted them, but probably 30, 30 to 40 channels, um, because the broadcast environment here is so robust. And so the, 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 the digital multi-channels um, that, unless you uh, receive your signals over the air in the U.S., you might not even realize are there, um, are, are pretty abundant. Um, but I don't have a DVR, and in, in a lot of ways, that has been the bigger adjustment. Um, and as a result of that, I have probably been using my streaming services more. But Instead of something like Hulu, um, here almost every single one of the channels has its own catch-up service that is also um, free um, or ad-supported. And so I use those a fair bit, um, although since my preference is to watch, let's say, a whole season, a lot of times they don't have rights to a whole season or because I'm new, I want to start at the beginning and they don't have the early seasons. So that's all been interesting. Um, <laughs> to, you know, I, I'm just thinking a whole lot more about my behavior and sort of like everything is strange um, in a way that is frankly kind of helpful for what I do instead of being caught in my usual behavior ruts um, in the U.S. How about you, Alex? What's keeping you sane? I mean, you you got at it like your behavior has changed because of your move. My behavior has changed because I'm not leaving the house anymore. <laughs> um, so I've got a couple of things that have been keeping me sane over the past uh, over the past month, and 
First of all, there's Gilmore Girls. I am now near the end of the fourth season of Amy Sherman Palladino's classic WB show. And it, it's almost like the perfect show for just a time where the entire world is in flux because it's fun, it's charming, we, you've got those great performances, and it's just an all-around good time. And I've also spent a lot of time playing... Are you re-watching? No, this is my first time through. <gasps> oh my, Okay. I know. I, I feel like I have a lot of television. I forget how young spot. you are. <laughs> I mean, I was alive when it was airing, but I was quite, I was too young to be watching it as it aired, I think. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's been great to go meet Stars Hollow. Uh, I was going to say the other very good show of that era that I don't think has found its way onto any streaming service uh, is Everwood. If you haven't seen that one, it is. It would similarly be good in these times. I think it's a Warner Brothers show, so maybe somehow it'll be on uh, HBO Max. Yeah, I'll check that out. And the other thing that's been keeping me sane is the video game Overcooked and Overcooked 2. Now, Overcooked is what happens when you take a kitchen and instead of having one person do each job, everyone does everything, and you include different stage hazards. It is chaos. But it is exactly the perfect fun kind of chaos where, you know, you could be trying to serve your food and you fall into a pit of lava. Or, you know, somehow you're you're trying to chop up an onion and an ocean floods the stage <laughs> and your onion gets swept away and you get swept away. It, it, it's all around chaos, but it's a fun time. I don't know. That sounds an awful lot like what it must be like for for folks who are trying to work from home with small children who they're trying to do homeschooling from home in a small space. (laughs) Uh, Just the absurdity of the challenges these days. And that's it for this special quarantine edition of Media Business Matters. You can find out more about Media Business Matters by going to amandalots.com and clicking the podcast link at the top of the page. That also has our entire archive of episodes. You can also find our episodes on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Feel free to hit that subscribe button. You never know when we might come back and do another one of these. (laughs) Uh, Amanda, where can our fine folks find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Entner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. You'll hear from us again at some point.